0: Well, I want to thank you for sending me to the Shepherds Conference uh, over at uh, the Master's Seminary or Grace Community Church. Actually, it's the church that puts that on over in Sun Valley. Uh, Exit Roscoe off the 134. I've got that ingrained in my head. Uh, Leaving the house every morning at 6 a.m. and getting home at 9 p.m. But uh, it was worth... uh, Every inch of crawling along the freeways uh, to get over there. Uh, I feel like uh, the theme this year was we preach Christ. Uh, just world renowned speakers uh, and over five thousand pastors and elders from around the world uh, was privileged to meet men who are laboring for the Lord in Pakistan, in Saudi Arabia, in Japan. Uh, Africa, all over the place, uh, just Israel. There were uh, pastors, evangelical pastors from Israel, uh, which, by the way, do you know that uh, it's against the law to buy property in Israel if you're going to use it to have an evangelical church? Uh, you yeah, they can rent, uh, but they're not allowed to purchase that property. They're very strict about proselytizing in Israel. Uh, so evangelism is very closely monitored. So but just. Fantastic time. Thank you. Uh, I was out, so I didn't have time really to work on Thessalonians. So I'm going to recycle one of the messages I heard uh, at the conference. So if you could turn to John chapter 21, uh, the gospel of John uh, chapter 21. Uh, There is an outline, as usual. uh, Is there an usher out there, Tom, or someone? If you have that speaker on out there, could you guys bring in some outlines? Sometimes people don't grab those uh, because you uh, you'll be. Lost uh, if you don't have that. So so the gospel of John, uh, of course, uh, John was an apostle. Uh, his gospel uh, was written for us to demonstrate the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, John's gospel presents Jesus as God from the get go in chapter one. Uh, we know that's his mission. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Uh, all kinds of wonderful things uh, going on in the Gospel of John. You notice your outline is a little bit different this week. Uh, it's just a one page outline, guys, front and back out there. I don't know uh, what's happening, but that's all right. Uh, lots of marvelous things about Jesus uh, are displayed uh, in the Gospel of John. Uh, how he brings light and life to the world. uh Teachings, uh, the great I am. So there you go. If you need an outline, hold up your hand and uh, Tom will get you. The great I am. He did amazing miracles to demonstrate that he was God. Uh, John records our Lord's passionate suffering, uh, his hideous, humiliating death and uh, just the powerful, glorious resurrection. Uh, and you see on your outlines, there's going to be places for you to write your own notes. I'm not going to be giving you answers at every stop Uh Uh, You have to think uh, today uh, to uh, well, that sounded bad as if you don't think every week. So that's not what I meant. So easy, Evelyn. Easy. I can see you're getting angry. All right. I wanted uh, places on the outline for you to write some devotional thoughts there. Uh, So now we come to the end of chapter 20. If you look at verses 30 and 31 and we see John's climax to his wonderful glorious gospel end of chapter 20, and it hits like a giant thud because we read, let's read 30 and 31 first of chapter 20 says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but the things I have written have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. But then we uh, come into chapter 21 and we think, well, the end of chapter 20, that's a great ending. That should be the end of the gospel right there. That's a what the, everybody loves a happy ending. It's one of the reasons I didn't particularly care for La La Land. It didn't have a happy ending. It was depressing. Oh. Oh. Oops, as well as some immorality there, you know, so maybe you just give it so. Oops, sorry. Well, maybe you think it's happy. So that's funny. OK, so we think this would have been a perfect ending at the end of chapter 20, but it's not the end of the story. Uh, we end on a high note, the pinnacle, the high point of the gospel would be perfect at the end of chapter 20. But it hits like a thud. Like a colossal thud. It just comes kind of crashing down in descent as we enter into chapter 21. In fact, the contrast is so jolting when we come out of chapter 20 into chapter 21 that some so-called experts think that John didn't even write chapter 21, that it was added later by someone else. That's how how much we think this doesn't go together. Uh, But he did write it. And we'll see in a moment. And to make matters worse, in chapter 21, we're going to run right smack into Peter again. Good old Peter, right? What a pain. Am I allowed to talk about an apostle that way? Peter, the apostle Peter, what a big pain. Can't we just end with Christ? Chapter 21 ended with Christ. Do we have to go back and look at the apostle Peter again? Because we know he had some problems. It would seem this is very disappointing at first, I guess. Why don't we just skip chapter 21 and go flying into the book of Acts? That would be that would be good. Because we like that, Peter, you know, after the ascension, the day of Pentecost, we have 11 chapters of Peter preaching and being courageous and leading. Let's just skip to that, Peter. Do we really need this John chapter 21, Peter, all over again? There's an answer to that question. Yes, we do need it. Here's the answer to that question. Do we need this, Peter? Because with all the glory that John has brought to us throughout his whole gospel, culminating at the end of chapter 20, eventually we know that all of that glory will end up in clay pots. And you're going to be hard pressed to find a clearer pot than the Apostle Peter. Do you know, Second Corinthians chapter four, Paul told the Corinthians he was talking about their ministry The gospel ministry, ministering to people, taking the word of God to unbelievers to bring them into the kingdom of God and then taking the word of God to believers to sanctify them and disciple them. Paul says, we have this ministry in clay pots. Think about that. The glorious, majestic righteous beautiful ministry of the exalted Christ handed over to clay pots. This chapter 21 of John is for us. It has to be part of the story. When the apostle Luke began writing the book of Acts, how did he begin begin it? He began it with the words that uh Uh, Jesus began, he says, I'm writing about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So as the Lord ascended and the Holy Spirit descended in the book of Acts, the work of Jesus' ministry was handed over to the apostles first, who were clay pots. Now, I hate to bring you down. I don't really. I just say that because I feel like that's what I need to say. I actually enjoy it sometimes. We have been entrusted with this ministry now. First of all, we as pastors and elders, then we as Christians in general. What were these clay pots he's talking about? Paul told the Corinthians. Well, a clay pot at that time was a very common, replaceable, weak, ugly, broken container or vessel that was kept in the home. And usually for a very specific purpose, they would collect a certain product uh, in these pots. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, what is he talking about? We used to call that in our home. We used to call it a pot. Get off the pot. You're hog in the bathroom. That's what we're talking about. That's what. Yeah. Some of you, I heard the murm- murmuring. ooh. Paul said, Jesus has handed over his glorious ministry to a bunch of clay pots. Weak, normal, average, broken, humble, common vessels. Peter is an example of that. That ministry has been passed on to us. We are the Norwalk Grace Brethren Clay Pots. Maybe we want to think about change. giving our praise team a name, huh? And now the Clay Pots? Oh, no, we probably don't want that. No, that that might look good on a T-shirt. We need to hear this ending to John's gospel, right? It may drop like a thud at the end of his wonderful gospel, but we desperately need to hear it because even in our frailty and our weakness, we must carry on the gospel of Christ. I think we could make a case that Peter had done enough things that they might want to think about revoking his ordination papers, right? Right. Just think if he had come to our, he would come to our church and present his testimony and his application to our elders to join our team. We probably at this point in his life would say, no, thanks. Uh, we've reviewed your resume. Uh, we noticed your application. We see here occasionally speaks for the devil. Uh, remember Jesus said, get behind me. Same. Occasionally speaks for the devil, occasionally pulls Jesus aside and tells him what to do. And when things get tough, he denies, denies, denies that he knows the Lord. And then he swears. Um, We're good. We're good. Our team's set. Thanks, Peter. But I'll give you a few other churches you might want to contact. The loud thud we hear in chapter 21 starts with the first three words. Look at 21, verse 1. After these Things Jesus manifested or showed himself. He appeared again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias and he manifested himself in this way. Simon, Peter and Thomas called Didymus, which means twin and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and the two others of his disciples were all together. So what we've got here is all the men who were in the fishing business. Martin, you're going to love this message today. You're a resident fisherman, uh, I think. What we've got here are all the men who are in the fishing business, the Galilean fishermen. You can throw Thomas in there, too, because he was one of them. Now, it's pretty startling in verse three. And if you like to write in your Bible like I do, that's why I can never get a new Bible. I've just written so much in here uh, that I can't replace it. And I, do, I did find a binding company in Manchester, Indiana. You mail your Bible when it falls apart and they'll rebind it for you and send it back. I can't part with this. Anyway, you don't care about that. Okay. Verse three. In other words, if you write in your Bibles, you need to make a note something by verse three? Shocking, startling, surprising, provocative, crazy, insane. What? You could write that. Because what does Simon Peter say in John chapter 21, verse three, Simon Peter said to them, read it with me. I am going fishing. That's shocking. You don't look shocked, so maybe I have to explain it. We might think, oh, everybody in the ministry, the ministry is exhausting. It's tiring. Let me tell you something. If you do it right, it's exhausting and tiring. In a good way. Everybody needs some recreation when they're in ministry, right? He's just going out to do a little fishing. Well, this is not about just grabbing a rod and a hook on a sunny day and going out to enjoy enjoy some recreation. Earlier, Jesus had told his disciples, go to the mountain in Galilee and wait for me there. I'll give you further orders. Uh, I'll be there. You just wait. And then I'll give you a commission and you'll know what's coming next. But in a very predictable, disappointing move, Peter decides to go back to his former vocation. When he says, I am going fishing, he's not saying I need to relax. He's saying, forget this. I'm confused. I'm I'm I I don't know what's going on. I'm going back to what I did before the Lord called me. I'm going to go back to being a fisherman. I know how to do that. Well, he's the leader, just like any good rubber duck. All the rest of the fishermen follow him. That's why they're all there together. And the wording here. Look at the wording in your scriptures. There's a finality about it. There's a permanency about it. It's not just recreational fishing. He is permanently going back to his old career of fishing. How do we know that? Because it says, uh, they say in verse three, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat circle highlight underline there's a definite article in the language there before the boat it's the boat the boat that they used for their job it wasn't just any boat and they were back in their own area and notice it was a boat big enough for all of them to get into it wasn't just a recreational boat and what did they take with them we know notice as we go on down further in the story in a little bit they'll take their nets nets are not used for recreational fishing And if you look at verse seven, it says what? That Peter had stripped down to a loincloth. And what for? You should have a parenthesis with a statement, right? In your Bible. For he was was stripped for what purpose? For work. Went back. Says they were a hundred yards out. They weren't just fishing for fun. Now, here's a huge question. Why did Peter do this? Why did he do this? Why did he go back? Hadn't he seen the risen Christ already? Yes. In this account in a little bit, we'll learn this is the third time Jesus appeared to them. He'd already seen the Lord twice after his resurrection. So why did he go back to fishing? And I think the answer is more simple than we might expect. The answer is that he was a crushed man. He was a crushed, destroyed, embarrassed, humiliated man because of his behavior toward Jesus at the trial, at the crucifixion. He, remember, would always be the one right out front He would always be the one who would say, ready, fire, aim. Right. That's Peter. He was completely embarrassed and lacked any self-fortitude at all to continue in the Lord's work. He was a proven failure at this point. One minute he's serving the Lord and the next minute he's serving the devil. He had told Jesus earlier in the Gospels. Remember, he said, I will follow you to death. And the next minute, he's running away. Take note for our own lives. He had underestimated the power of temptation and overestimated his own wisdom. At the moment in the story, when Peter abandons the Lord and runs away, we don't even know if he's any different than Judas. At that moment. Full of self-doubt. Overwhelming weakness. Debilitating fear and disappointment. But I can fish. I know how to fish. I'm going to go back. To fishing. Verses four and five. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said out to them. Children. You do not have any fish, do you? Now, that's irritating. Even if it's Jesus, that's irritating, right? Martin, when you come home empty handed. You don't need your wife to say, you didn't catch any fish, did you? Thanks for pointing that out. No. You don't really need to punctuate that. No, we didn't catch any fish. So they, Scripture says, they said to the Lord, no. Or no, no. No. Now, remember, this had happened in Luke five as well. This is the second time this kind of situation happened. Peter, when he realized in Luke five that it was the Lord saying that to him. If you remember that story, what he said at that time was, Lord, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. So here he was, the same sinful man in the presence of the same son of God. And when. And when the Lord said, you don't have any fish, do you? Here's what he was really saying. Here's what he was really saying to them. You don't have any fish, do you? He was really saying, you can't fish anymore. I control the fish. You can't fish anymore. I control the fish. I called you to fish for men. No, 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 that's just a coincidence. They they were just in a bad spot on the water, right? Verse six. So he said to them, cast the net onto the right hand side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. You know, originally, at first there was no fish anywhere in the area. And when the Lord said, oh, cast the net on the other side of the boat, I'm sure their first instinct was, what is he crazy. You know, so we just stay in the same bad spot where there's no fish. So we'll just take the net from this side and we'll put it on this side. And that'll make a big difference. That guy over there on the beach, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And by the way, this is the last miracle recorded in the Gospel of John. There must have been some kind of authority or something in his voice that caused them to do what he said, even though they didn't know who he was yet. But then the scriptures say, if you look there. Verses six and seven, look at verse seven, it says the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter. And by the way, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved? John, the one who wrote this gospel. I mean, why call yourself John You can call yourself the disciple whom Jesus loved? I mean, that's even that's even better, right? He never mentions himself by name, which I think is a, just a mark of humility. The disciple whom Jesus loved in verse seven said to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. Then look what the scriptures say. When Simon Peter saw that it was the Lord, he put it on his outer garment for he had stripped himself off so that he could work. And he threw himself into the sea. Well, that, that is so Peter. Just totally out of control, impulsive. He doesn't even help the guys haul in the fish because the passage tells us they couldn't even get it in the boat, that they, they were dragging it back to the shore. Uh, and he just jumps out of the boat and he starts to go. They get into it, the others get into a smaller boat, verse 8, a little boat that was with the big fishing boat, and they row ashore. It says they're dragging the net. Full of fish. The scriptures say. Continue reading on. Verse eight. Verse nine. When they got out on the land. They saw a charcoal fire already laid. And fish placed on it. And bread. So they get there. And Jesus had made breakfast. How does Jesus make breakfast? Here's how Jesus makes breakfast. Breakfast. Breakfast, it's there. That's probably the best breakfast they ever had, right? Can you, imagine, can you imagine the resurrected, risen, eternal creator, God of the universe making you breakfast? That's really... I don't even know why I'm saying it. It just, it just strikes me as... Sheesh, okay. He says in the passage... Bring some of the fish you've caught and we'll add to it. Now, verse 11 there says that Peter did what Jesus said and he went and he dragged the net full of fish. It says how many fish were there? 153 fish were there. Now, that's interesting that they mentioned the number. And that's important for two reasons. Number one. We know that John was an eyewitness, a reliable eyewitness, so much so that the fish had been counted. and He recorded the number. Uh, and secondly, it's significant because it's a miracle. Such a small net couldn't have held all those fish. Verse 12 uh, or at the end of verse 11, it says, even though there were, there were so many, the net was not torn. So now that Peter and the others know. That they can't fish anymore. Now that they know it's Jesus, they know they can't fish anymore. And that's the lesson for them there. You can't fish anymore. I control the fish. You can't fish for fish when you've been called to fish for men. Now notice in our text, starting in verse 12, that Jesus, our Lord, begins to do an amazing thing. What does he do? He moves toward the restoration of Peter and the others. Remember, because they had all fled, they had all denied him, went into hiding, all except one. Do you know who was the one who didn't run away? Who was the one who stayed at the cross? And John, yeah, the, the youngest of the bunch was the bravest. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast, verse 12. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and gave them fish. Likewise, this is now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he had been raised from the dead. Now, we don't know what the conversation was around that breakfast fire, but I think we can think about that and we can kind of figure that out. Right. It must have been pretty intense. Right. There were probably. A lot of apologies. Sorry, Lord, we just didn't trust you. We all ran. We all scattered when you were arrested. Only John stayed. We're all weak. We're useless. We didn't know what else to do. We know how to fish. And so we thought we would just go and do that. Then the Lord starts the restoration. Now, what's interesting is if it was you and me, we would have thought. You know, Jesus might want to put together a replacement group because these guys blew it. Right? Come on. Three years living with him. The teaching, the miracles, the Mount of Transfiguration, the death, the burial, the resurrection. He's alive and they've already seen him twice and they're still acting like this. Hashtag a new set of twelve. Right. This is time for the Lord to hit the reset. If you're like me, you're surprised that he's going to turn once again to these weak, frightened failures. But here's the good news, folks. Here's the good news. Do you want some good news? Some of you are begging for it. Okay. Okay. The good news is this is all he has to work with. Clay pots. Is a new group going to be any better than these 11? (laughs) We're all human. We all have the struggles, right? We're all clay pots. You know, this is just like, don't apologize for quoting scripture. Okay. kind of reminds me a little bit of Isaiah, right? When in Isaiah chapter six, when uh, and by the way, Isaiah chapter six is Isaiah's salvation. This is Isaiah's conversion to true belief in the living God. It's really interesting account there in Isaiah six. Because when God, who in the person of Christ appeared to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, Appeared in his glory, Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And we, we, I think we tend to romanticize and make it more grandiose than it is when the triune God says to Isaiah out of all that smoke and fire, Who will go for us? And we think Isaiah says, Me! Oh, go and pick me! I don't think that's how it happened. No one else was there. He was the only one. <laughs> he was there by himself. The passage says it's not like there's a big crowd and there's tons of people. Oh, I'm gonna. Oh, forget these people, Lord. It's me. Pick me. He was there by himself. I, I think it was more of pick me, or it was more of um, uh, pick me. That's what. That's what I think it was. Clay pots. So here's a big question. John chapter 21. How does Jesus disciple a disciple? Isn't that a great question? How does Jesus disciple a disciple? How does Jesus restore a disobedient disciple? How does Jesus do biblical counseling with a disciple? How does... Jesus shepherd a wayward sheep. How does he pastor them? How does he recover them for usefulness? And we think, oh, this is going to be very long, very complicated. This is going to take years of therapy to get these guys back on track. Months and years. But how does he do it? How does he do it? Verse 13 begins or verse 15 begins. He does it by asking Peter one question three times. Do you love me? Pretty simple session over. Pay the receptionist on your way out. You know, the world's full of techniques and strategies and ideas and philosophies and therapies and endless books and more complexities in the back of a Persian rug on how to counsel someone. And how did Jesus disciple this weak, vacillating disciple? Four words. Do you love me? It's shocking. For its simplicity. There's absolutely no ambiguity. There's no gray. There's no trying to figure out. It's simple. Either yes or no. There's no mystery in Jesus's counsel. Do you love me? If you're like me from childhood, I was taught, you know, from a very early age, you need to believe in Jesus, Right. Romans chapter 10, you need to believe in Jesus, then you grow a little older and you start hearing you need to serve the Lord, you need to do something for him, you need to work for the Lord, you know, and along the way we learn also well, we need to witness for the Lord, we need to share the gospel, we need to talk to other people about Him. you know, if you're like me, a lot of you from an early age. I was involved in the church from a very early age. Uh, whenever the doors were open, I was there. Uh, later, I became active in youth group. I spent six years doing Bible quizzing, going to Momentum, helping around the church wherever I could. Later, growing into an adult. Uh, yes, I'm an adult. Uh, teaching, discipling, leading, doing all these things. But all along the way, I noticed something uh, that little, kind of bothered me. It never felt like I was really experiencing The sanctifying power of the Lord in my life. Sanctifying power meaning that intense growth, that uh, deep intimacy that changes your life because you're spending time with Jesus. You know, and it's at that point where someone says, well, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, you, which means you need to yield yourself more and more to the spirit so that he can empower you and sanctify you for the Lord. And, and you have to strive to be filled with the spirit continually. To me, that felt a lot like a, a passive approach to my spiritual life. It was like, OK, here I am, God, I'm waiting I'm waiting for you to come upon me and zap me full of your energizing power so that I can serve you faithfully. I'm open. I'm I'm here, you know, come and fill me. Right. It was all very passive. And, you know, I just stand there and I do nothing and I wait for God to come and do everything. I was waiting for something to happen to me. And so uh, I remember a long time struggling with my sanctification. Until you come to Uh, Places uh, like 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is very helpful to me. Which talks about how we gaze into the glory of Christ. And then we are changed into Christ's image by the Holy Spirit. You know, and then we begin to understand something when we see passages like this. We begin to understand that. Sanctification or spiritual growth is not passive, but it's aggressively active. Sanctification is not dependent on me just passively standing there empty, waiting for the spirit to come fill me. But sanctification depends on the relentless pursuit of the knowledge of God in the glory of Christ. In other words, if we're not chasing after Jesus, we're not going to grow in our relationship with him. God's not just going to show up and zap us into a vibrant spiritual life. By the way, that's called. Robert me, Keswick theology or Keswick theology. Let go and let God. That that's really what a lot of believers believe. There's only one way to enter into the glory of Christ in the pursuit of knowledge of him. And that's we have to go to the Gospels. We have to go to the scriptures. We go to Matthew, we see Jesus as king, we go to Mark, we see him as a servant, we go to Luke, we see him as a man, we go to John, we see him as God, we go to Hebrews and we see him as a great high priest. We go to the book of the Revelation and we see him as the lamb who reigns and the king who sits and reigns on the throne. And then we can go back into the Old Testament and we can see Jesus Christ in every book throughout the scriptures. And we're just taken with his glory at every turn. He is exalted. As king of the world. It is a relentless pursuit of knowing Christ in the pages of Holy Scripture. That we grow. And that we have a vibrant relationship with Christ. And we don't ever stop. We keep seeking and seeking and seeking and knowing and knowing and knowing him. The clear word of Scripture. Our Bibles tell us. That our sanctification is directly connected to our pursuit of the knowledge of Christ in all his glory. It's not passive. Paul told the Colossians, remember, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So we come to the end of John's gospel and we're amazed at the simplicity of what our Lord said to recover and restore the most critical disciple of the bunch. Because the early church desperately needed Peter back in the fold. Jesus says. Let me ask you, Peter, one question. You ask the question out loud together with me. Do you love me? He says, have you seen enough, Peter? Have you heard enough to love me? You know, I always knew that I needed to believe in Jesus and I needed to serve Jesus and I needed a witness for Jesus. But I'm not sure I ever thought about the fact that I needed to love Jesus. That may sound weird. But I know, you know what I'm talking about. But we should have known that, right? Because what's the first and greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Soul, mind and strength. Jesus is God in human form. And so what God expects from me for Jesus is to love Jesus with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind and all my strength. It's all tied to loving the Lord Jesus Christ with all our human faculties. First Corinthians 16, says that anyone who does not love the Lord is damned. Anathema. The good news is that if you're damned for not loving the Lord, the opposite is that you will be given eternal life for loving the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? The motive... For all our sanctification, the motive that drives us in all of our service for the Lord, the motive that compels us to follow the Lord is simply, do you love me? Let's look at the conversation quickly that Jesus had with Peter. These words are important. Verse 15, when they finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon, said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, this is important. You should if you have a good study Bible, you've got numbers and letters in front of that word love. And then you're going to follow and find because he's using different words for love here. This is important. Jesus says, do you love me? Agapao. The deepest, most noble, most committed type of love. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? More than these. What does he mean by more than these? He he could be referring to the other disciples, but I don't think so. I think they're all in the same boat. I think he's saying, do you love me more than these? These fish, these nets, these boats, these careers, these sports, These entertainments, these whatever it is. Do you love me more than anything in the world? Are you willing to give up anything and everything to follow me? Do you love me? We would expect Peter to say, yes, Lord, I agapao, I love you. But he doesn't. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo. Love you. Of course, Phileo, we know. Philadelphia. Phileo would be probably the least of all the loves. It's a brotherly love. It's a friendship. So Jesus says, Peter, are you deeply committed to me? Do you love me more than life itself? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I really like you a lot. That's what he says. That's what he says. Lord, you're a great guy. You know that I like you. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? Why do you think Peter answered that way? I think he answered that way because he knew if he had answered any other way, he would have been a liar and the Lord knew it. Right? After everything that had happened, every... Way that Peter had disappointed the Lord for him to look the Lord in the face and say, Lord, you know that I would sacrifice everything for you. I am deeply committed to you. And he knew he had just betrayed the Lord and denied him three times and ran off and he was in hiding. He couldn't say that to the Lord. So he just appealed to the weakest kind of love that he could muster. Because I think he was a broken man. He was embarrassed. Jesus says, tend my lambs. And then Jesus says to Peter in our text a second time, do you agapao love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo love you or deeply like you. Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. Now. We come to verse 17. There's a big switch. Jesus asked Peter a third time, and this deeply grieves Peter, not because Jesus is asking him a third time. But because Jesus is going to challenge even Peter's statement of basic love for him. Verse 17, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you even really phileo love me? Wow, that hurt. That hurt. Do you really even Peter have that basic minimal type of love for me? Notice what Peter does. This is so important in verse 17. Peter was just cut, destroyed. Peter says in verse 17, And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, here is a mighty lesson in the deep, deep love of Christ for his own. Peter appeals to Jesus's omniscience so that Jesus could explain Peter to Peter. The reason he says, Lord, you know, all things he's saying, Lord, you know, you're omniscient, you know, my heart, you know, that I love you. He's saying, you know, whether or not my love is real, because here's a tremendous lesson Our Lord will accept a love that is less than perfect, but never a love that is less than real. What other love could he accept from clay pots but imperfect love? As imperfect as Peter's love was, it was real. And he appealed to the Lord to search his heart because he had been so crushed, so broken. Peter probably even wondered if he really loved the Lord. Because we get hung up on our past, don't we? And this is a recent past. He's thinking about all his failures, all his mistakes, all his weaknesses. And he's probably thinking, you know, here's the Lord in front of me asking if I love him. And I can't tell him that I love him because I've been a humongous failure. And so he says, Lord, search my heart. Search my heart because, you know, whether or not I really love you, the very last three words of verse 17 are what? Ten my sheep," there's Jesus' answer. Peter's love as imperfect and broken and weak as it was, it was real. It was real. Verses 18 and 19. Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said to signify what kind of death Peter would have to glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow him. He said, stretch out his hands. He didn't mean stretch out his hands and be led around. He said, Peter, your arms are going to be stretched out just like mine. I was crucified, Peter. I'm telling you right now, that's how you're going to die. You will be crucified. How would you like to know your manner of death? What if you had the opportunity to know how you would die? He didn't know when he was going to die. Peter lived 30 more years after this. But we know from church history he was crucified. He was unworthy, he said, to be crucified like his Lord, so he had them crucify him upside down. He lived 30 years, always knowing that his death would come by crucifixion, but never knowing when. How would you like to have that weighing over your head? But we know that Peter never turned away again. We know that Peter never turned away again. We don't have time to go there. Jot down these passages. Second Peter, chapter one. Verses 12 through 15, second Peter, chapter one, verses 12 through 15 and first Peter, chapter four, second Peter, one, 12 through 15 and first Peter, four, 14 through 16. Peter talks about in his letters to epistles, he talks about this conversation that the Lord had with him. And he talks about dying for Christ, which, by the way, every true disciple must be willing to lay down their lives for Christ. We struggle to even sacrifice a couple hours on Sunday morning, let alone sacrifice our lives. But that is the expectation, folks. Our failure does not change the expectation. To be a follower of Christ means we must be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. Peter goes on. He's steadfast. He's courageous. He's immovable for Christ, even in the face of the imminent threat of death. We see that through his letters. We see that in the book of Acts. He was a changed man. So we come to a happy ending after all, right? After verse 19. Not so fast. Look at verses 20 through 23. Peter. And then what do you see? What's the next two words? Turning around. Oh, boy. Really? After all we've been through. Come on, Pete. Apostle Pete. Get it together, dude. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing this disciple, said to Jesus, Lord, what about that guy? Jesus said to him, that's none of your beeswax. That's what it says in the Greek. That's the Greek. It's none of your beeswax. If I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. That's really what was happening. Jesus was at the end of his rope. He was like a parent with a child. that you tell the same thing over and over and over again. And finally, you just say, you know what? It's none of your business. That's what he's saying. You just worry about yourself, Peter. You follow me. You make sure that I am your all-consuming passion And make sure that nothing distracts you from following me. Don't worry about others. Don't compare yourself to others. Don't compare your walk with me to the walk that others have. You just relentlessly follow me. Clay Our Lord has no other options, does he? But That's good news. I'm a clay pot. Some of you know me better than others know me. And you're saying in your mind, oh, yes, amen. He's a big clay pot. It's true. I confess. In Acts 1 through 11, we see a new Peter preaching, teaching, being a bold witness, demonstrating courage and leadership in the face of violent threats. A true disciple of Jesus is willing to sacrifice even his very life. A true disciple loves nothing more than he loves Jesus. So this morning, four simple, clear words. One penetrating, powerful question. Do you love me? And take it further, just like the Lord did with Peter. The Lord is saying to you, do you love me more than these? Not these people. Do you love me more than these things that are distracting you? These things that are trying to control your heart. These things that are beckoning you to come and worship them. These things that seem so good and wonderful and fun and exciting and do you love me more than these? Are you willing to leave behind everything, everything to follow me? Let's pray. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. It is not my message. I borrowed it from a speaker at the Shepherds Conference, but uh, you have used it in my life mightily because it's your word. Father, we need to see and hear this conversation you had with Peter because that's us. We live in a world that tells us that we need to be exalted, that we need to be esteemed, that we need to... Uh, You know, be in the limelight. We we are superstars. We are important. It's not true. We're clay pots. We're clay pots. We're common. We're ordinary. Sometimes we're broken. Sometimes we're useless. But that's the good news, because you are God who knows a good clay pot. It is Christ in us that can bring Christ from us. We want to serve you. We want to believe in you. We want to be a witness for you. But, Father, more than anything else, we know, based on what we heard this morning, that we must love Jesus. Our Bible tells us he who does not love Jesus does not love God. So many people run around today saying, oh, yeah, I love God. I love God. I love God. But who is this Jesus? If we don't love Jesus Christ, we cannot love God. It's not possible, no matter what we tell ourselves. And, Father, for those of us that belong to you already, we have entrusted our souls for eternal life into the hands of Jesus who died in our place and who rose from the dead. But still, we struggle sometimes. We have slowed down in that relentless pursuit of the knowledge of God found in the glory of Christ revealed in the scriptures. We've gotten lazy. We've gotten apathetic. We've gotten self-centered. We've turned, we've turned Jesus into nothing more than a moralistic therapist. He exists to make us feel better about ourselves. That's hogwash. Christ is on the throne. He is to be exalted. John said, Jesus must become greater. I must become less. Father, we are less, but we know that we are not useless. If we allow you to rule and reign over us and in us. So, Father, my prayers, we enter the Easter season is that we would relentlessly pursue the knowledge of God and the glory of Christ as revealed in the scripture. That we would be willing to love Jesus more than all of these. Anything that we think we need, anything that we want, anything that we desire, our disappointments, expectations that we've had, may we just surrender it all. Until Christ becomes all in all in our lives. Because that's all that matters. Father, forgive us for our sinfulness. Forgive us for not loving you more than all of these. Thank you for the good word this morning. Thank you for the rebuke. Thank you for the encouragement. Father, thank you that Jesus comes after us. When we set out to see Rowing off away from the Lord, he appears on the beach and says, come back, come back, come back. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for restoring us and rescuing us. So, Father, we leave here full of joy, praising, exalting you and your spirit. Especially exalting Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here today. God bless you.